1: You know, that's the strategy of the devil, to depress them. The strategy of the devil is described on what he does to Christians, what he does to the people of God in Daniel 7.25, where we read, and he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Daniel said, a day is coming when men will follow a leader who will continually speak great words, high and mighty words of great pride against God. And what this will do to Christians is that it will grate on them, and it will grate on them, and it will grate on them. It will grate on the people of God, and the people of God will have such a battle fighting against this proud blasphemy that it's just going to wear them out. It's just what it says. It's gonna wear out the saints. It's gonna wear them out. It's gonna exhaust them. And that verse does not say that the proud boasters against God will try to will try to wear out the saints. It says that they will wear out the saints. Now, to wear out the saints means to put them into a state of depression. And when the Egyptian people put those taskmasters over the Jewish people, their primary goal was not to get the pyramids built. You know, they didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, we got to build a lot of pyramids here. How are we going to get it done? I know we got some people we can enslave. That wasn't their purpose. That was collateral. That was what got done in the process. Their purpose was to afflict them, was to depress them. Notice carefully the wording in verse 7, where it says, therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. So, That was their goal. Their goal was very, very clear. It was not to build the pyramids, they got built anyway. That was the side benefit to them. The treasure cities, as they're listed here, of Python and Ramses built for them. That was not their primary goal. Their primary goal was to afflict them. When the Egyptians set the taskmasters over the Jewish people, they had one goal, and that was to afflict them. They had one goal in view, to drive them into such a state of depression where everything was black, where there was no light, there was no hope, just a sense of falling deeper and farther down into a pit. That's what depression is. And that was the goal they had against the Jewish people. And when a person is in depression, he's lost sight of a title for God, which is found in Romans fifteen thirteen, And it says, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. When a person is in depression, he can't see God. And he certainly cannot see God as the God of hope. A person who's in depression is in a state of fatalism. He has no joy, he has no peace, he has no hope. He's trapped in dismal fatalism. And that's what the Egyptians were trying to do to the Jewish people. They would discourage them to such a state that they would go into depression and just feel like giving up. So when it says in verse 11 that the Egyptians set taskmasters over the Jewish people to afflict them, that meant they put the taskmasters over the Jewish people to depress them. And they were trying, the Egyptians were trying to drive the Jewish people into depression. You know, in 2008, there was a very interesting study on depression that was conducted on 235,000 people in the U.S., And I wanna cite from you out of this study three major groups in the U.S. that suffered the most depression and what caused each group to go into depression. So here are the three groups with the highest depression rates and the three reasons for why they were in depression. First, and as we do this, think with me of how the Egyptians created the same conditions as those groups in the U.S. seeking to drive the Jewish people into depression. One group in the U.S. with a depression rate of 13%, that means that 13% of this group suffered depression were those who who felt not a part of the majority of society. They were African Americans. And that's the group with the not part of us depression. Now think of how the Jewish people felt so outside of the Egyptian society, and they were driven, sought to be driven into this not a part of us depression. Another group, second group, with a depression rate of 17% in the US was the group that felt that they had no future. The group that felt that they had no future. That was the group with no high school education, no high school education, and of that group, 17%, suffered from depression. That's the group with no hope for the future depression. Now think of how the Jewish people in a state of permanent slavery with no hope of ever getting out of that slavery were driven into the no hope for the future depression. And then the last group, with the highest rate of depression of 39%. In other words, on this group, 39% of all the people in this group suffered from depression, and they felt that they had no freedom of choice because this is the group that was physically disabled. So of the group that's physically disabled in the US, 39% suffered from depression. That's the group with no freedom of choice, depression. Now think of how the Jewish people felt in Exodus 1 as slaves with no freedom of choice and how the Egyptians were seeking to drive them into the no freedom of choice depression. See, all of three things here were all part of what it means when it says they set taskmasters masters over them to afflict them. This was their strategy. The affliction was to drive them into depression by not feeling a part of the society, by no hope for the future, by no freedom of choice. And the Egyptians felt that if they could just push the Jewish people down hard enough into depression that they could break the spirit to live in the Jewish people. That they could make the Jewish people to give up the will to live. That they would cause the Jewish people to come to the conclusion that they must not have any more children especially the Jewish women, they wanted to put into this depression that they would stop having children. Because when women go into depression, they have a rise in stress hormones, the stress hormones of cortisol, epinephrine, and norepinephrine. And it's been documented, when these hormones rise, fertility decreases. And what the Egyptians did to the Jewish people is a picture of what the devil wants to do with us. The devil is the god of discouragement. The devil is the god of depression, and the devil tries to discourage us, and the devil tries to depress us. And depression is such a common problem today. That same study that was reported in the CDC of the 235,000 people in the U.S. found that on average, one in 10 persons suffers from depression in the U.S. Some studies have found that as much as half of all people in the US will have been treated for depression one time in their lifetime with a cost of over $50 billion per year. So what we've seen through the picture of the Egyptians seeking to depress or drive down the Jewish people is how the devil in particular tries to drive down the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ into depression as we saw from Daniel. And so here's the question, so how do we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, resist depression. How do we stand against depression? Now, we are told that first of all, we have to realize that the devil is the God of depression and God is not the God of depression. Depression is not from God. And we're told this in 2 Timothy 1.7 where it says, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear. That's a symptom of depression, fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So to fight against depression, we must have a sound mind. Now, what is a sound mind, and how do we get a sound mind? Well, we see the answers to this, the, the answer to this, in Romans 8:18. 8, Here Paul says this, "For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which is to be revealed in us." We see here in this verse a sound mind, Paul's sound mind at work. And from that, we get an understanding of how to have a sound mind. And it's all tied up in that word, that one word that he used, reckon. Now, that's kind of an interesting word because we don't use the word reckon today. If any of you were to walk around today and you use the word reckon, they'd say, are you a cowboy? Did you come from the Wild West? Do you come from Texas? I mean, we don't say the word reckon. You know who used the word reckon? Hoss Cartwright. On the Ponderosa, Bonanza, he used the word reckon. And so this verse of Romans eight eighteen looks like Hoss Carr writes that, where he says, for I reckon, for I reckon. I mean, you can just hear big Hoss saying something like, Paul, I've been doing some thinking here. And the way I figure it, Paul, I just reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which you can follow, you know what I mean? So, and Paul would say, you reckon right, Hoss. <laughs> you know? So from the way that Hoss used that term, we could say, what does it mean, reckon? Well, reckon means you think, you figure it out, you deduce, you conclude. That's all tied up in the word reckon. It's an activity of the mind word. And that's just what Hoss Cartwright would have meant when he said, the way I figure it, I reckon. So how did Paul reckon or figure out that the sufferings of this present world are nothing to be compared with what shall be revealed in the next life? Because there's no verse in the Old Testament that says that. There's no verse like that. So Paul was not referring to a verse. Now, there is a verse in the Old Testament that says, eye has not seen nor ear has heard the things which God hath laid up for them that trust him. Okay, so he had that verse. But what you see here is that Paul then took that verse and he reckoned it out. He reckoned it out. That's why we could call Paul the Jewish cowboy, because he said, I reckon. So the Jewish cowboy Paul, he figured it out, he thought it through, he surmised it, he concluded it, he deduced it, and he worked it all out in his mind. And what Paul did is he used his mind to draw conclusions from the scriptures. That's what it means to have a sound mind. It's to reckon with the scriptures, it's to think through the scriptures, it's to ponder to conclusions using the scriptures, it's to deduce. Draw conclusions, so the first defense against depression is not just to read the scriptures, but to think them through, to think through the scriptures and to reckon based on the scriptures, to use the Haas-Cotwright method with the scriptures, for I reckon, reckon with the scriptures. Now, we've seen that the strategy of the devil in driving us into depression was given to us in Daniel seven twenty five, where that verse said, and he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Now, first of all, who is the Most High? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been exalted to the highest place. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what does the devil do to the saints? How does the devil wear out the saints? Number one, The devil attacks the person of Jesus Christ, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks great words against the Most High. Number two, by doing that, he wears them down. He drives them into exhaustion. So in order for saints to not go into depression, what do they need to do to counter Number one, being exposed to hearing these great words against the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And number two, from becoming weak or worn out or exhausted. Now, remember, we need a remedy. or We need this remedy from God, a remedy that will be against hearing the great words that tear down the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need a remedy from becoming weak or exhausted from being beaten down and being made weak and worn down from hearing those great words. And so, what do we need? We need this remedy, and God has just the remedy we need for these two problems. Problems of hearing the great words against the Lord Jesus Christ and from the weakness of being worn out and worn down by that. Now, for all those great words against the Most High, for all those times when we hear people say, Jesus or Jesus Christ to swear words and it grates on us and it wears us down. For all those times when we hear those great words against the Most High where his birth from the Holy Ghost is questioned. For when people say he was a sinner, when people say he cast out devils by the prince of the devils, our retreat is a remedy. Our remedy is a retreat where we go and where we find the help we need. We need a retreat away from all those great words against the Lord Jesus Christ, where as they dishonor him, we need a place where we see him in great honor. A retreat from all those great words against the Lord Jesus Christ, where they trod him underfoot, as the Bible says in Hebrews, as we need a place where we see him in great majesty honor, and majesty. From all those words against the Lord Jesus Christ, where they tear down his person, we need a place of retreat where we see him in his beauty, where we see him in his honor, where we see him in his majesty, where we see him in his beauty. If we only had a place like that, if we only had a place of retreat where we could go away from all those great words against the Lord Jesus Christ, where we could see him in great, Honor, where we could see him in great majesty, where we could see him in his great beauty. That would solve our problem of hearing those great words against the Most High. But we hear those great words against the Most High every day. So every day we need a place for repair to see his honor, his majesty, and his beauty. And if we just had a place we could go daily to see his honor, majesty, and beauty, then we'd have the daily remedy that we need. But that place has to do one more thing for us because those words exhaust us, as it says in Daniel, wear down, and we are weak. So that place has to be a place where we become strong, where our weakness is exchanged for strength where we come exhausted from the fight and we are strengthened. It would be great if in that place we could see his honor, his majesty, his beauty, and find strength. If we could just have a daily place like that, that would solve it for us. And the Lord Jesus Christ has provided that place for us. And if you turn to it in Psalm 96.6, in Psalm 96.6, we have that very place described for us, and it says these words, Psalm 96.6, honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Just what we need, honor and majesty, a place for our repair, where we see the Lord Jesus Christ in his honor, in his majesty, and in his great beauty. And where do we find that? What do we also find in that place? Strength. Strength for us. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. That's the place of perfect repair for us, where our hearts are encouraged, where we see him in his honor and his majesty and his beauty, and where we receive for ourselves strength, strength. That's the place we need to go for our daily repair. And where is that place? It's before him. It's in his sanctuary. Before him, in his sanctuary, that's the place. And where do we find that place? Is it a physical place? We're told in Ezekiel eleven sixteen, 16, God says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Although I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. How does the Lord Jesus Christ describe himself? His person is the little sanctuary that we need. In him, before him, he is the sanctuary. Every day, every morning, when we go to our specific place and we shut out the world and every distraction and every urgent have to be done now, with an open heart and an open Bible, we come there and we pray and we say, well, Lord, here I am again this morning. I've come to this daily appointment with you. You never miss this appointment and I'm here today to keep the appointment. I've carved out for you this time, as the most important time of the day, to meet with you, to read your Bible, to look forward to how you will speak to my heart in this time. I'll pray to you now, I'll praise you now, I'll thank you now, but most of all, I determine to see in this place your honor, your majesty, and your beauty. That's what it means to go before him. That's what it means when it says he will be for us the sanctuary. That's what it means for us to avail ourselves of him as the little sanctuary just where we meet together with him. And in that place, we find cleansing. We find purification from all the filth and the blasphemy against the Lord Jesus Christ that we've been exposed to. And we're so encouraged to see the Lord Jesus Christ again there in his honor, in his majesty, in his beauty. And we leave, with that, we leave that place strengthened. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. We leave that place not as we came, not weak, but strengthened in the inner man, strengthened within. Honor and majesty are before him, Psalm 96.6. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. So what are the two methods that we so much need to not go into depression? First, use the Hoss Cartwright way of reckoning with the Scriptures. Think through the Scriptures. Conclude from the Scriptures. Read the Scriptures and say, well, if that's true, then this must be the case. That's what Paul was doing. Think through, number one. Number two, daily meet with Him in a quiet time. If we do these two things, what we'll find is the Lord will keep us, keep us and protect us from the depression that just as the Egyptian taskmasters were seeking to drive and afflict the Jewish people into a state of depression, just as they did that, we have a devil today that seeks to drive and afflict Christians into depression. But if we do these things, God will protect us from that depression because he is the God that David described in Psalm 3.3. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. Are we worn out? Do we feel worn out? It's time to go into God's presence. I'm not talking about going to church. I'm not talking about an assembly. I'm talking about getting alone with God on a daily basis where we come directly just with just jesus and me just jesus and you that's all and that becomes the little sanctuary that becomes the place before him and that's where we find such great great help and that's how we come away now what we're going to find as we go into our next study is that the plan of pharaoh and the plan of the egyptians didn't work And it's going to be something that's thrilling to see because we're going to be able to answer the question, why didn't it work? It didn't work because God, because God was not going to let them destroy his people. We have a faithful God. We have a wonderful God. We have a faithful God. And we give him the thanks for his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time in which we've been able to once again look full in the wonderful face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look there, Lord, things of this earth, they grow strangely dim, very strangely dim, Lord. And as we look into your face, Lord, all the loud sounds of this earth, of this world, clamoring against God, become muted We can't hear them. As we look into your face, Lord, we're able to get perspective and to realize, Lord, that you've called us to be a people for eternity and to look beyond this temporary time of the disobedience and rebellion of this world and see the Lord Jesus Christ high, holy, lifted up, his train filling the temple. Lord, help us to be, as people of God, help us to be, Lord, people with vision, and guard us from depression. Help us, Lord, as we seek to keep that appointment. You never fail to be there, Lord, but keep that appointment because it's so much what we need for our good as well. Thank you for hearing us, in Jesus' name, amen.
0: Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God.